HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. These programs are sponsored by listeners like you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on a journey through culinary history, as usual. Today, we're looking at the history and art of dim sum. When the Michelin-starred chef Andrew Wong was on a working tour of China, it ignited curiosity in not just exploring the vast cultural and regional differences that have come to define the gastronomic identity of China, but also opened his eyes to the beauty of China's 3,000-year history firsthand. It inspired newfound respect for the local and ceremonial aspects of Chinese culinary heritage and began the formation of ideas for his own approach to cooking. He sought help and collaboration with Dr. Mukta Das, food historian of China and Chinese diaspora, to find answers to his culinary history questions. Such is the case now with their recent research on the history of dim sum and its relationship to the pastry arts. Andrew Wong is an award-winning chef and anthropologist. He is British-born of Chinese heritage and... With a combined academic background, this has led to a cooking style with one foot, I love this part, one foot firmly placed in the future and the other inspired by the past. Andrew opened his restaurant, A. Wong, in 2012 with his wife, Natalie. The A in the restaurant pays homage to his parents, Albert and Annie, because they had had a restaurant actually in the same place. Um, until Andrew opened his restaurant. Andrew's restaurant was awarded its first Michelin star in 2017, and in 2021, he was awarded a second Michelin star. He's also a research associate at the School of Oriental and African Studies um, Center in London. And Mukta and, and Andrew are no strangers to podcasting because they have a podcast of their own. 
and we'll talk more about that later. Um, so welcome, both of you, to the show, and I'm so happy to be chatting with you. I've enjoyed listening to you on your podcasts. Oh, well, thank you, Linda. It's a real pleasure for us to be on your show. Thank you so much for the invitation. No problem. Um, and Andrew, uh, well, basically, I guess, first, Mukta, I would ask you to describe a little bit how you became involved with food history, especially Chinese. I know you have said in one of your bios that Chinese cuisine is not and has never been monolithic. So this question goes out to both of you, really. But so Mukta, you first. Um, is that what got you interested in Chinese cuisine? Absolutely, Linda. I mean, I've been a multiculturalist for as many years as I can remember, really. So pr prior to my academic career starting, I was, you know, um, I've, I've had lots of different kinds of friends and lots of different kinds of eating experiences. And when I was young, I, I was, I was born in London in England, but I was oh, raised. You, excuse me. I'm going to, because I forgot to read, <laughs> forgot to read your bio, but, but go ahead. I, now you're giving it to me. Okay. <laughs> um, no problem. So I was, I was raised a little bit in India in, in the Western, um, sorry, in the Eastern parts of India. Um, and, we had a thriving Chinatown there and I was raised in sort of Assam, which is the northeastern state, which butters up, bust, sort of buttresses up against uh, southwest China. So there were, it's really hard to kind of pin down a moment when I started to be involved or interested in Chinese food history, Chinese history in general. Um, I did a, um, my my academic career started a long time ago. <laughs> I did a master's in uh, Chinese and Indian history, but then only recently did I go back and complete a PhD in anthropology and especially food anthropology and focused on Chinese food history and Chinese food culture. So um, there's not one moment, but it's been a really long love affair, I think, with um, China and its food. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> Uh, indeed, I'm sure. And Andrew, you are you are also an anthropologist. You are a research assistant at the also at the School of Oriental and African Studies, um, at, at the uh, the Center in London. Well, well, first, <laughs> first and foremost, uh, I'm I'm a chef. First and foremost, I would oh, never. Of ever, course, you're a chef. I, I would never <laughs> ever be bold enough to say that I'm an academic because uh, that is strictly a, a very specific set of skills that Mukta possesses, and I definitely don't. Um, but but it's it, it, the research associate kind of came about through kind of collaborative work that we did together, um, mm -hmm. and it became um, kind of um, apparent that there was more to um, our collaborative relationship more than just being kind of one way in the sense of just asking Mukta for information and for um, archives or for um, um, old poetry old anthropological studies it became more than that it became more of a kind of a um conversation and it became a conversation where i was able to push back with um very very kind of pragmatic points or or, or chef sh chef points um which sometimes academics um kind of let through the cracks and um, purely because um they don't seem um apparently obvious all right. It, it, well, it's it's clear to me, and 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 I will um, let, give people your 
podcast um, title. It's called Exo Soust. I love that name. <laughs> um, and you you attempt to do this, what, like uh, every couple of weeks, every month or so. And it's on, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. Um, but it is, it is evident from that that the two of you um, really have this wonderful rapport and you, there's a lot of give and take and you, you, you feed off one another and throw each other, you know, questions and ideas and, and topics. And, and what I am interested in is how you decided and chose to apply some of that to your cooking, Andrew. Um, you know what? I think the, the, the main reason behind a lot of, um, the inspiration came from the fact that, you know, when you, when you learn the, the craft of being a chef, I think a lot of the time throughout your training, it's it's very much about kind of replicating other people's stuff. You're either replicating kind of classical recipes or you're replicating dishes that you've seen or you're replicating um, ideas that you've, you've, you've noted from somewhere done by someone else. And I think it comes a point, and it came a point probably like six years, seven years into opening a restaurant, that it was kind of like... Um, we wanted to find a direction and and a, and a and a source of um, grounding for our cuisine that wasn't just about um, replicating other people's work. And so, our conversations with with Mukta and the ideas that we bounced around um, over coffee and over lo- lo- long, long discussions was very much about using that as the inspiration behind a new direction for the restaurants. Hmm. Are you often surprised at how similar some of these ancient um, recipes or dishes are to a lot of foods you have been cooking in your present day? You know, absolutely. I think um, the overarching kind of um, understanding that I get from all our work is that, you know, we're not here to reinvent the wheel. Um, It doesn't matter how much technology you can accumulate over three or four thousand years. Actually, there are some very, very fundamental staples about food, about deliciousness, about um, the fact that they have cultural identities, the fact that they have medicinal qualities. These are all kind of universals that might slightly change and morph through time, but actually they're always apparent. um, And it's just the way that we, the lens that we look through and that changes as opposed to the food in itself changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm always surprised at, at how um, medicinal so many of the ancient texts are, as you just mentioned, and that uh, that if you and then you read and you're surprised, you know, one is surprised to to find out, oh, gee, and there's the origin of their use of peppers, which actually came late in there. In the sure, I, you know, and I, you know, you, we we look through a lot of ingredients, and I, I think one of the one of the most surprising ingredients that Mukta ever highlighted to me was the use of rhubarb, for example. You know, I think coming mm. coming from a, um, a an upbringing in 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 the UK, you kind of assume that rhubarb is probably British um, or, or at least European by origin. But you know, when when Mukta started sending me information on these medicinal recipes using rhubarb, dried rhubarb, um, and piecing together a case that actually. Um, there's probably more information to, to show that um, rhubarb has been a, around in Chinese cooking longer than it's been around in British cooking. You know, it really begins to set um, a starting point for an investigation or a, a further conversation. 
Um, and a lot of our work isn't necessarily about replicating old recipes. You know, we, we mm. look at thousands of recipes and we, we did make a very uh, important decision early on that we never wanted to just look at a recipe and, and recreate it and go, well, here it is. And we wanted to have a, a more, a broader kind of approach to it, kind of um, almost a painter's approach to it in the sense that we wanted to kind of capture um, moments in time, um, experiences in time through particular foods and dishes as opposed to just being, this is a recipe from this recipe book from this moment of time and let's just recreate it. I think when you do that, and plus the recipes are very, very, um, what, what should I say, simple a lot of time. The way, that, the right. way they're written, they're very, very kind of four-word, five-word uh, listing ingredients. They're not particularly elaborate at all. Um, so actually, I think if we were to go down that route, I think if anything, it would end up being more counterproductive than productive. Hmm. Right. I mean, it, it, that's I found that in doing research on ancient uh, recipes and even just very old recipes, they assume that the reader knows a lot about cooking and, you know, very rare are there amounts given, you know, or, or amounts, times, temperatures. It's basically a, a, a an outline, a structure. Sure, an idea, sure. Right? And right. I mean, a lot of them were logs, right? So a lot of them were medicinal right. logs of the emperor of, you know, for, for his physicians to know, um, you know, what, what he's had in his diets and, and therefore what can be altered over time. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the function of, of collating this information never really was to be able to recreate, you know. Um, if anything, chefs in, in the times that we're discussing, you know, were always very, very secretive of their, of their know-how. Um, and actually, you know, the idea of writing it all down for someone else to know um, probably wouldn't have been um, their preference. Hmm. Mukta, I'm... Turning to you, and that is, I would imagine, as far as looking at primary sources, primary sources must be extremely difficult because I'm not sure that you read all the different uh, Chinese languages of the dialects or, you know, that are written in. What, so what do you fall to most frequently when you go to research some, some of these, let's say, let's, let me ask a question like the history of dim sum. (laughs) (laughs) But <laughs> it's it's a difficult one, Linda. And and yes, I do read Chinese scripts, so mm-hmm. it's not it's not the language isn't so much of a barrier. But it is, as you say, the primary sources are written with a specific audience in mind, and often these aren't chefs transmitting knowledge. Um, you know, we don't have that kind of uh, Escoffier kind of le guide cuisinier, you know, you don't Mm -hmm. have that kind of level of transmission of knowledge in these texts. So it is about the gaps. And sometimes these are really big gaps. And Mm. um, one of the really large conceptual gaps is, what is dim sum? (laughs) Like, how do we even uh, start to think about dim sum as a sort of historical piece. Um, we, we, we kind of maybe are very hyper aware of dim sums, um, supposed origins in, uh, Guangzhou in Hong Kong, uh, during the kind of 1800s, those, that long 1800 period with European colonial, uh, European treaty ports opening up China and a kind of level of, um, of, of East and West um, mingling, a kind of a, a different kind of um, cultural history coming out from that period in which dim sum grew and became a, a kind of um, 
um, if you like, a kind of export industry um, with chefs coming out of China and entering into San Francisco and New York and London. Um, So dim sum has its kind of trajectory from that period. But actually, what Andrew and I have discovered is that, you know, when we think of dim sum in in a broader sense, as a kind of um, repertory of skills, as a kind of um, a kind of principle of eating snacks and beautiful dishes between meals and with tea and over different kinds of occasions outside of family meals, um, we start to find different um, different kinds of recipes and inspirations for dim sum um, from very early on, from the Tang Dynasty onwards. And so you have instances of, um, well, even actually even earlier than that. So if we take these principles and think about these things as, you know, beautiful things to be had in between meals, um, you know, we, we can we can always look to the Confucian era texts and see certain delicacies coming out from that to be had, um, you know, uh, in small quantities. And you start to sort of see this kind of tradition of dim sum happening from, from a very early age and from various regions of China. It just in the 1800s, they just happened to kind of land in Guangzhou at this really important period of Chinese history and Chinese culinary history and, and become a, a, a kind of culinary super category in and of itself. But really, we can see the an- antecedents in lots of different places and regions mm. and, and different times in history. Mm. And Andrew, as far as you, um, do you incorporate dim sum in your restaurant at all? I mean, you're a very high-end um, restaurant. The dim sum is usually, you know, in these big banquet halls serving lots of people. However, I'm assuming it can be translated into a very delicate individual dish. Do you use the the theory of, of dim sum itself in any of the dishes? Yeah, I mean, Linda, absolutely. I think dim sum is probably... Um the most important part of of what we do in a restaurant and the reasons for that are not purely because of um the fact that i'm i'm always in awe of of dim sum chefs with the you know the the level of dexterity the level of artisanal skill that is required required in in producing these things but in a in a, in a strange kind of way the uh, the the narrative of surrounding the the exportation of dim sum from the southern Chinese regions in the 1850s. I think that's a story that quite resonates with me in particular um, because we're a restaurant serving dim sum um, in the UK. And a lot Mm. of this stuff is linked to colonial eras. And a lot of the inventions that happened in dim sum in particular are a result of um, trade, relationships and introduction of um, otherwise Western ingredients into the Chinese repertoire during this time. And that's why I feel it's um, super important for it to be um, rediscussed, I think, on the on the gastronomic scene anyway. I think over the past hundred or so years that, that Chinese restaurants have been around in, in you know, North America, in Europe and in the UK, I think that there's been a very strong relationship that people have um, built with what they perceive to be dim sum and what they um, allow it to to almost stand for. Um, and what 
I hope to do in the restaurant anyway is to get people to reconsider that. You know, if, you know, if we really look back at the 1850s, we're talking about a time when dim sum wasn't just a pastime. It wasn't just a Saturday afternoon, a Sunday afternoon thing. You know, this really was about celebrating the most skilled chefs from around China, um, trying to serve the very best ingredients, the very best technical um, mouthfuls of skill to a very, very high brow uh, clientele. Um, and the way that it's transpired, you know, for the next 200 years, you know, is, it, it, it is obviously very individualistic depending on the country that it's gone to. But I think that it's, it's lost its original meaning of what it was and what it stood for to start with. Hmm. We're going to talk a little bit more about what it really means and what it stood for when we come back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Andrew, you were you were talking about how you think um, a lot of the uh, the history of what dim sum really was and what it meant has been lost somehow in translation. But let's talk about that. Or Mukta, you chime in. But what what was the original meaning of dim sum, and and what you know what how when was it served? How was it served? I mean, unlike Andrew, and this is probably where we sometimes have a bit of a disagreement, I I don't think of the 1850s as fundamentally the birth of dim sum of the kind of um at the kind of quality that Andrew's talking about. I I think of it as a very long process. And I think um from the very beginning, Guangdong, the southern province of China, has been sort of a center of excellence for Chinese culture. And I think dim sum comes from this, from this striving, this drive to be a center of excellence of Chinese culture, because Guangdong has always been sort of at the forefront of international trade, um, not just with the Europeans from the 1800s, 1700s, actually, on onwards. But, um, you know, from... Uh, with East Africa, with Southeast Asia, with East Asia, you know, it's been a kind of um, a hotspot, a melting pot of all sorts of different influences over centuries. And so what you have here is um, artisans of a really high caliber taking all these foreign influences for two millennia 
and turning them into excellent um, crafts and arts for Chinese consumption. And so what you have with dim sum is a reflection of this incredible technical and cultural skill um, that's been honed and honed and honed over several centuries. And so um, this kind of Lingnan, this kind of Guangdong culture is kind of it is dim sum, in in my opinion. It's it's like a it's a reflection of this kind of this uh, this kind of strive towards this sort of marrying of foreign and Chinese um, influences and styles into something that is high class and recognisably Chinese, but incredibly um, uh, different and elite and, and and beautiful. So dim sum to me sort of represents this kind of this this technical skill, this kind of if you like this kind of sweat. <laughs> economy <Yeah. laughs> of, of making it into something beautiful and so and, yeah i'm sorry and you spoke about um one of you um mentioned delicate parcels and that's and that just stuck in my brain because that's that's all i can picture you know are these beautiful beautiful if anyone has seen you know beautiful arrays of dim sum just i mean the the time the time and and as andrew as you said the you know the the technical ability and artisanship just incredible yeah absolutely and i, and I feel like that's the that's really the conversation is is the fact that somehow um for something that started under well in my in my school of thought anyway my, something that i'm saying that started under these conditions or for being something that was meant to celebrate um the very very best of what china had to offer um in the mid 1800s um, you know, somehow it travelled the world, and somehow in 2022, it's it's almost become just um, a habit as opposed to a celebration. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that you know it, it's it's had incredible implications for the way that Chinese communities have spread um, and how they have integrated into um, other uh, cultures. But at the same time, I think that. Speaking from the perspective of 2022, when now the world is so open and and there is so much information um, available to everyone, I do feel that in in a, in a strange kind of way, I think that in in revisiting the origins of what dim sum originally was, I think that there definitely should be um, another look at at what it is and what it could be. Um, and what the potential for it is, gastronomically speaking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so many uh, over the years. I mean, since uh, well, I mean, American chefs or um, other nationality chefs are using this this gastronomic art and art form. I guess you I don't know what you call it together. Uh, you know, the gastronomic arts to create interesting new dishes, creating this dim sum. Uh, type of of dish, but my question is too to just in, in Mukta, you had touched on this that um, I think of you know the the trade routes and and tea houses and of course having a little something to um, you know a little bite to eat and travel along your way, which so many people talk about as origins of dim sum. But do do you have any idea when? the name was applied to a dim sum, which actually has a specific meaning, right? I don't actually know when it would have been common usage. Um, 
I mean, I'm assuming to some extent, I mean, the, you know, in Guangdong in the 1850s, when it became a much more of a, you know, a citywide phenomenon, these tea houses um, and these tea restaurants and these, these fabulous places, um, you know, they, they probably would have been born out of that time where we would have differentiated between these kinds of um, all day ability to snack and to to enjoy not only the teas with the dim sum, but also the entertainment, the singing arts, the plays, the dramas that mm. would have also been available to tea house patrons at that time, um, as opposed to sort of banqueting and uh, restaurant meals um, where you would have had a very different kind of format. Um, and perhaps your listeners would, you know, who you know frequent Chinese restaurants understand, you know, where you have, you know, a large, large servings, a family style meal. These are very different um, from sort of sitting down to have dim sum on a Sunday or a Saturday afternoon, you know, very different formats, very different kinds of ideas of how you balance a meal. So I think at that point, there would have been a separation, but but I'm not entirely sure when the the phrase or the name dim sum would have been or dian xin would have been applied to the to this actual form of eating. Andrew, do you know? But I also feel like the 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 other important point to make here is that you know this no one really has a very um concrete definition of what dim sum actually is right i mean mukta and i discuss this at length all the time it's like you know the, you, you look across the world and actually you're talking about 50 or 60 items that have near enough traveled the whole globe and that's become almost the accepted repertoire but actually as we look back and if we actually if we look further back pre 1850 what we're actually seeing more so is that actually the, the the foods that were coming under the umbrella of dim sum, there was a lot more than what we perceive to be the repertoire currently. Um, and mm. so I think that, you know, it was a much wider selection. We, we've kind of found sources of, of kind of maybe two, 3,000 uh, items which came under this umbrella of dim sum. But we don't hear about them now, or you don't really see them very often now. Um, and a lot of the time, you may or may not even categorize them as being dim sum in the way that we like to pigeonhole things anyway. You know, a lot of them may be soups, braised meats, um, you know, uh, small steamed meat items. They weren't all dumplings. They weren't all necessarily um, under this apparent category, which we've, we've, we kind of turned fact um in 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 our contemporary times yeah. well i have um had the uh, privilege of of seeing a lot of photographs from your restaurant and anyone can if you go to the website a period wong.com the name of the restaurant um andrew you have i mean you talk about the artistry the the technical ability and you are employing this in, uh, from what I've noticed, in many of your dishes. I mean, I saw these incredible packets, and I have to say that they were looked like a something that, not anything that I've ever been served, <laughs> but in the steamer basket, these incredibly beautiful little mini crips that I don't know what is inside. Looked like maybe there was some uni sticking out, but there was caviar on top, and there was a truffle slice, and and beautiful colored pastry ribbon running around it 
this had to be a labor of love that you developed when you were like a like a painting i mean or as you say the the um relationship to the pastry arts and so what is your take on that you know the the take on it is is one where i i just want to address the similarities in skills that exist um you know, I grew up in a in a in a time when you know in the eighties when again dim sum was very new to to London at that time. Um, you know, there were probably only two or three restaurants in the eighties that were serving dim sum. Um, it was very novel at the time, um, but it became novel for something that was just purely Chinese. Um, yeah, obviously, what what we know now and is that actually it's not, is it? Dim sum is a is a an amalgamation of not only uh, Chinese ingredients, Chinese skills, and, and and Chinese cuisine, but also it has many influences from the West. The introduction of butter, the introduction of certain textures uh, mm. that you see in dim sum. Those are not probably, again, this is argumentative, but probably not um, originally from China. Um, they're probably things that be brought to China and then become part of our gastronomy. You know, I mean, recently speaking, I was I was looking at a, a sponge cake called a Malay go, which is you know Malay Malay cake uh, in translation. You know, and then there's many many stories about how it came to be, uh, whether or not you're talking about uh, f- from the the Malay Peninsula into China, or you're talking about from China back to Malaysia. Uh, but the one thing that is probably openly accepted is that there was some influence from the British colonial um, rule. And secondly, this idea of of British colonials finding almost a semblance between um, dim sum and afternoon tea. And I think, you know, that in a celebration within itself, I think is so nice. Um, mm-hmm. It's finding similarities between cultures who are seemingly so different at the time um, through food and through eating. And I think if you can hold on to these kind of larger ideas of what food is and larger ideas of what dim sum is, I think it it gives you a lot more um, joyful interpretation. Um, And uh, Mukta, I heard, well, both of you, I heard both of you talking about not this, um, but uh, the Song Dynasty, which just goes way back um, to medieval times, and um, the uh, how there was so much care taken in a lot of the preparation, and I'm thinking of of dim sum, and I, I love the 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 um, analogy of dim sum to British tea. I mean, the tea ceremony, the serving of these little bites, but they're, you know, we, they always say, you know, we eat with your eyes, right? First, before you taste anything. And this certainly, it was this evident in any of these early ancient texts or that eating, you know, making food beautiful so that certainly we know in, in ancient Roman times, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Linda, in fact, I mean, there are not that many surviving 
texts uh, from ancient times um, on to, uh, to towards now um, in Chinese food history. So um, what we can glean, we glean from, you know, a handful about 20. And I usually consult about eight when I'm working with Andrew. And one of the key texts that I usually look at when I think about aesthetics and what's on the plate, and if that delights the senses or not, is a a text um, from sort of the 400s, 400 AD to 500. We're not entirely sure when it was written. Um, Essential Arts for the People's Welfare, Qi Min Yao Shu. Um, And what's incredible there. From very early on, then, you have this kind of care taken over um, how the plate looks and how to finish things. And so even from that, from very early on, when most writers of of food texts in China at this point were kind of very concerned with uh, making sure that there was enough food to, you know, people were uh, farming well, they were cooking, um, you know, seasonally, people had enough to eat. Actually, this text stood out because it, it is really about how to delight the senses. And so, and so you have this kind of this tracks then all the way through to the Song Dynasty, where you have these much more elaborate texts. And the the big difference between 400 AD and 900 or 1200 AD is that you have incredible amounts of trade going on. So you have all these incredible ingredients, lots of different kinds of spices and uh, luxury foods coming into China through Guangdong. So you have this vast array of material available to you that you can start to play around with, match colors, look at different kinds of preparations. Um, You have wok frying, you have seed oils, you can flash fry things, you can twice cook things. All sorts of things suddenly become really possible in the Song Dynasty. Lots of different kinds of technology in the kitchen, on the farm, uh, means that there are all sorts of different kinds of food and vegetables at such great abundance that you can start to kind of play around and, and look for delightful things. So even though you have this kind of this this um, this 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 obsession, I guess, with creating beautiful food from 400 AD onwards, actually in the Song Dynasty you get this kind of peak of culinary culture where it's possible to kind of really really um, turn this kind of elite pleasure into into restaurant food for the middle classes, for the merchant classes, and for a broader sweep of of, of Chinese eaters. And so you, yeah, I think that's where it kinds of kind of deepens and seeds into Chinese culinary culture. Hmm. Andrew, where do you see um, your work with with this further exploration of dim, dim sum going? Um, well, you know what, well, first of all, back to your original, your previous point about mm-hmm. um, plating and, and making things beautiful. I think, you know, that in itself as a definition has changed over time. You know, if you took it kind of, even if you look at European cuisine, if you compare kind of what was perceived to be beautiful in Scoffier's time and you compare it to now, you know, in a in a in a time where there's a in especially in high high end cuisine, it's like there's this look to kind of Scandinavia, um, simplicity, organicness, you know, the the way that Japanese cuisine has has been elevated, well not even been elevated, been been kind of revered as being high cuisine as well. Um if anything, I feel like at the work that Muktanavo looks through is that the beauty comes from the simplicity, you know. So um, that's very much a, a kind of um, route that I like to think and like to think along when when we try to find presentations for our dishes. Is that you know we're not trying to make them um, 
all singing, all dancing with lots of different colours and lots of different fireworks all over them. There's something about the simplicity in, in letting the ingredient be the beauty, number one. And number two, again, with a lot of this banqueting that we've looked into, it's about the collection of these seemingly simple things collectively becoming something beautiful. Um, mm. And I think the beauty comes from that. You know, it comes from the fact that, you know, okay, if it's a, a very, very lightly piece of pickled carrot all by itself in a bowl, okay, it may not seem the most beautiful thing in the world. But once you set it out as an array of eight or nine different pickles, I think then you begin to paint a very different picture of what of of what that table looks like and how you may perceive beauty. And I, in my opinion, I really feel that that really is, um, in my opinion, very, very high-end cuisine. Um, which for me personally as a chef is as beauty, beautiful as, they, as it comes. Um, and if anything, if we talk about the work that we like to do moving forward, it's very much I'm trying to celebrate along those lines um, in, in trying to, you know, use the past um, with an understanding of, of our current times and the future and trying to find, you know, delicious mouthfuls, which will, um, you know, be representative of, of us in a specific time, representing a specific cuisine. Well, from what I can see, <clears throat> you are well on your way to, you, you have been for, some, for many years. Um, but it's, it's something that I look forward to, to see further in your work. And you can hear a lot of this back and forth. As you can see, sometimes they don't always disagree in these two, but I mean, they don't always agree. Um, but I, I, I encourage you to listen into some of their podcasts. Again, it's XO Soust. You got it. Soust. <laughs> it's Soust with XO. Um, and they, they just have these wonderful rambling conversations that, um, not rambling so much, they are focused, <laughs> but they, but they, you know, they let their opinions uh, come out, but they are always informed and and very um, entertaining. So, and I thank you both for joining me today to try to shed some light on the history of dim sum. I see it's very, very um, foggy or you know, not quite so clear, but dim sum. I believe it. One of the translations was "touch the heart," and. That And that certainly sounds like that's something you've been doing. Andrew, I can't wait to visit your restaurant and try some of your wonderful food. And Mukta, I look forward to hearing more from you. Uh, what more can I say? Say, um, when is the book coming out? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, you have a book, I know, of A. Wong. It's a book from the restaurant, a cookbook, right? Or it was a cookbook written a very long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah we 2015. Have, we, yeah. That's a long time ago, yes, yeah. right? <laughs> but, <laughs> I think, um, you know, we've, times have changed, and I think our cuisine yeah. has changed, and so right. we look forward to writing a new one. Well, I I can hear the wheels turning already <laughs> in this, and and it's just wonderful work that you do, and I, I really look forward to hearing more from you, and hopefully talking to you more, too. Please do. We look forward to it, too, Elinda. Right. So, and um, again, you can... Uh, find more at Exo Soust from these two, and that is Mukta, Dr. Mukta Das, and Chef Andrew Wong. Terrific conversation, people. Enjoyed it very much. And Thank you, Linda. And for my listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's program, and I thank you for listening.
And you can find more of our podcasts on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you visit Heritage Radio, don't forget to click the part in the upper right corner and consider a donation. Keeps us going. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.